You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Over 400,000 of Utah's residents have tested positive for COVID-19, and a summer spike in new cases is causing concern. A severe drought is also wreaking havoc on the state. In this episode, Utah Governor Spencer Cox joins Washington Post Live to explain his strategy to deal with these major challenges. Let's listen. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today, we're continuing our Leadership During Crisis series, and I'm delighted to welcome Utah Governor Spencer Cox. Governor Cox, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Good morning, Francis. It's great to be with you. Well, I want to start with some difficult topics. I know that you're grappling with twin crises in Utah, the COVID crisis and also the drought. And let's start with the drought, possibly the worst in 30 or maybe even 50 years. What actions have you taken to help people cope? Sure. So you're right. It's it's the uh, it's it's the worst drought in Utah since at least 1956, and, and and maybe in the history, at least the recorded history of the of the state. As as mentioned in the the lead in there, I've issued three executive orders in the state that have have significantly reduced the amount of water that we're using in state facilities. We're also working with our water districts to do the same. There are water restrictions now in every water district in the state of Utah, and uh, we're looking at at, at long term changes as well that we can implement, working with the legislature uh, to change some of the requirements. We, we have many uh, m- many cities and towns in Utah where we require actually unnecessary lawn and, and grass, uh, trying to t- change that, incentivize turf replacement, and significantly reduce water usage here in the state. We're also looking at, uh, at, at the importance of, of storing more water. Utah is the fastest growing state in the nation. Uh, the last census confirmed that over the past 10 years, no state's population has grown more per capita than than the state of Utah. And so we know as we continue to grow in an arid state like Utah, we have to conserve water more, uh, but we also have to store more water. The the people that uh, that settled these lands understood that. Uh, They built reservoirs that have lasted for generations and made it possible for for us to to survive and and even thrive in in this area. And uh, we have to do more of that. And those are conversations we're having with uh, with the Biden administration. Utah is also a farming state and you're from a farming family. Is there enough water now to grow crops and feed farm animals? Yeah, unfortunately, that's where we are. We are really struggling the the most. Uh, most farmers, including my my own farm, we're down about seventy percent of what we would normally expect for water usage this time of year. Uh, m- many of us have chosen just not to water. You know, in my my case, about half my farm uh, we haven't watered at all, so there there is no crop production on that, and, and that that chain impacts the, the animals that we feed, which then impacts, of course, the price of, uh, of meat and, and the, the price of, of food here, here in the state and, and, and certainly across the West. And, and those impacts will ripple uh, across the country and, and parts of the world. So, so that's, that's something we're deeply concerned about. We're working with our farmers, um, working with the Department of Agriculture to make sure that, that, that they can survive this year. That, and this is, what, what's hard about this is it's, it's back to back last year when there was more water, although the drought started last year, uh, COVID hit and there was major 
disruption in supply chain, which hurt the, the price of, of, uh, of, of meat for, for farmers, uh, poultry, as well as beef in, in our state where we have a lot of poultry and beef. And, uh, and, and so two bad years in a row makes it really tough for farmers. And we need to make sure that they, they can survive and, uh, and make it to next year. And, and hopefully this drought will recede by then. So neither of these crises respect borders. You can have a state, but a virus crosses state borders, as we know, and also drought is not going to affect one state only. What kind of advances have you made in terms of water storage working with the states around you and your fellow governors? So we're having lots of conversations about that. We're, we're part of the Colorado River Compact, and uh, it, this, this is something that for over 100 years has been very successful. The, these multi-state compacts that have allowed us to store water in some, some states uh, that, that is then distributed throughout the, uh, throughout the West. And so we have the upper basin states, like Utah is mostly an upper basin state. We cross, we cross two basins, uh, but we work very closely with, uh, with Wyoming and Colorado and other upper basin states. And then the, the lower basin states like Nevada and, and California. And of course, those are rapidly growing areas in the desert as well. And those compacts have served us well. And unfortunately, there's not as much water as was planned. And, uh, and so those negotiations will continue over the next few years as that compact is up for renewal, making sure that we're, we're looking at the and, and anticipating the water we have, the water we might not have as climate continues to change. Um, can we increase storage capacity? Where will that storage take place and how will those water rights be affected? So you mentioned climate right now. What role does climate change play in the disaster you're facing at the moment? Well, th there's no question. I mean, the data is very clear that the, the climate is warming and uh, that that is, is playing a role. So, so you have weather patterns that are different than climate, obviously, and we've certainly had drought forever in the West. Uh, we're, there, there is no average in the West. It seems like we're, we're flooding or we're in drought. Uh, but, but what we do know is that over, over the past decade, especially, we have seen uh, fairly significant warming in the West. And so that is exacerbating these periods of, of drought that, we, uh, that we're now experiencing. And, and you're right, it doesn't, drought does not respect borders. Uh, most of the West is in drought right now. We're, we're continuing to see that. And, and so again, we have to plan accordingly in, in multiple ways. One, doing what we can to improve climate. Um, and that, that's a long-term uh, issue right? I mean, changes we make today that will be impacted in 20 or 30 years, but also in the short term. And that's where we really need to focus right now is making sure that, again, that we're conserving, that we're storing water so that we have water for the, the next five years. You have uh, made efforts to reduce state emissions. I know. How receptive are the people of Utah to those sorts of messages? You know, it's it's uh, it's it's coming along, and uh, like like everything else, uh, change is difficult, and uh, and it takes time. But we we've been very fortunate here in the state of Utah to have a receptive audience. And and what I can tell you is, uh, while the, the climate piece has been a little slower to, to come, what, what has been really impactful. We, we live in in a basin. We have mountains surrounding, especially the the Salt Lake Valley, what we call the Wasatch Front, uh, Utah County, Salt Lake County, Davis County, and Weber County, which is where the 
85 to 90% of the population of Utah resides. And during the winter months, uh, because of the, the landscape here, the topography, uh, we, we, when, when, a, when cold air is here and warm air moves in, uh, it, it traps the cold air underneath and what we call an inversion. And, and nothing can escape that. And so the, um, any pollution that happens during that time gets trapped in that, that high pressure and uh, creates terrible air. Uh, and it's, it, you know, nobody likes those days. It, it, it's very, it, it's ugly, it's, it's dark, it's colder. Uh, so you can go to Park City and it'll be 50 degrees and in downtown Salt Lake City it'll be 25 and, and just nasty. And, and because of that, uh, we, we've had pressure on, on bipartisan pressure, both Republicans and Democrats coming together to reduce emissions, especially during those times. And because of that, we've made major strides. Our air is cleaner now in Utah than it's really been in the last 50 years at least. And, and that's great news for, for Utahns, but, but that also has an impact on, on those emissions that, that can affect climate. And so we've made major progress and we still have work to do. You've also, I believe, asked people to pray for rain, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about balancing that scientific message with the religious message you've been putting out. Sure, I you know I, I believe both of those messages are, are critically important. Um, we we have to do our part, and that's why we we are working so hard, especially on the conservation message right now. We have bills that are being drafted with the legislature to improve conservation in the state, um, looking at at removing unnecessary grass in in businesses and and churches, an area where the the grass isn't used. It, it's 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 purely there for for looks. Um, we we think there are lots of things that we can do to uh, to reduce that. But but I'm unabashedly I'm am a religious person. I you know I, I am who I am and and I've been very clear about that with people. Utah is full. Of, of religious people who believe in, in a higher power. And uh, the, the, the one thing that, that we can't control is the weather and those, those weather patterns. And so I, I've, I've asked that we petition deity. We have a long history of that here in the state of Utah, of governors in, in times of drought or times of crisis uh, who have asked the citizens to, uh, to petition deity, whatever you believe in, whatever God you believe in, or, or whether you believe that the, the, in karma or the universe, or that, that it's conspiring in our favor, that we put those those positive energies into uh, in, into one positive change in, in ourselves, and then uh, and then a hope that uh, that a higher power can help us through these difficult times. You've also asked for federal resources. What have you asked for, and what have you got? What progress have you seen there? Yeah, so we, we work in, in any time of drought. Um, there are drought programs with the federal government. Those have been around for, for generations. And so we will, we will utilize those drought resources, again, specifically with our, with our farmers and agriculture and those that, that are struggling there. Um, the, the one area where we've, we've uh, been working and we just had a meeting, Western governors, just uh, a little over a week ago, uh, talking with, to President Biden about wildfires in the West. And this, of course, is related to the drought, but this is a problem that is much bigger than the drought and, and much bigger than climate. It has to do with the way that we've managed our forest over the uh, the past 40 years and some of the mistakes that we have made. That's, again, science, we're now learning that it, it is important to manage forests. And uh, w these, these forests used to burn fairly regularly. Um, and, and then we started suppressing those fires for good reason, because we have people that live in these areas, uh, again, across the West. And these are U.S. forests. 
forests mostly. So the, the, this is federal land, and we need their help in managing these forests. And and when we suppress that that uh, that fire, and then we we also stop logging the forest, um, which we thought would be better for the environment. It turns out it was not better for the environment. Of course, over logging is terrible for the environment, but strategic logging is actually really good and helps the new growth to come in. So now what we have is these old growth forests that have been completely overrun with invasive species. There has not been a renewal process on there, and they're just a tinderbox. Um, beetle kill, uh, it, it's devastating when these giant wildfires, of course, California and Oregon have seen it most, and it's been really nice now to see Democrats and, and Republicans working together, understanding that we need to have controlled burns, that we need to have mechanical clearing of, of forests so that new growth can come in. And the areas where we've done that, wildfires have reduced dramatically, and that's where we're asking for help from the federal government to, to be able to partner on these projects uh, to help manage the, the, the health of our forests. Governor Cox, you're grappling, as we said at the beginning, with two crises, not just this incredible drought and, and the fallout from it, but also COVID. I think you've had something like 416,000 cases, but just 2,500 deaths. What has gone right so far about the way you have managed COVID in Utah? Well, that, that's a great question, and, and a question that nobody ever asks. We, we we always get asked about what's gotten wrong, and and we're certainly always willing to talk about that. But but I but I do think there are some very positive things that that have come from this. Is w there there was some data that was put out a, a couple months ago that showed that when when you look at e the economy and and specifically the, uh, the the unemployment rate in every state, and you combine that with the the death rate from COVID in every state, and then the number of days that kids were in school in every state, and you put those three things together, Utah actually had the highest ranking. And so I think those are the things that, that have gone right. We've been able to balance very cautiously um, the, the health of our state, which is critically important, and, and the, the, the death of our citizens, keeping that rate low while also safely engaging in economic activity, and maybe most importantly, being able to keep our kids in school. We implemented some programs very early. In fact, we were, we were a real leader in implementing some of those programs, what we call test to stay and test to play. Um, so we started testing our students uh, routinely who were engaged in any extracurricular activities um, and, and uh, uh, making adjustments as necessary when there were outbreaks to protect those from spreading. Um, and then as we were testing through schools, if we saw a, a, a school rates start to explode or we started to have an outbreak in a school, then we would, we would shut that school down, um, but then they could test to stay open uh, so we could keep the kids who were sick at home and, uh, and, and keep healthy kids back in school. Um, this is actually something that uh, the CDC ultimately adopted, many of the things that we were doing here in Utah, uh, but months, months later after we had already implemented them. So, so really keeping kids in school, because what we've seen uh, now that we know the, the, the devastation that is occurring to kids who were not able to be in school, to have that interaction with fellow students and their teachers um, is really troubling. And, and it set us back so much. I'm grateful that Utah is one of those states that was able to have in-person learning days um, all school year this past year. Not to turn to a more negative uh, question, but we do have this worrisome trend of the Delta variant. It's skyrocketing in Utah. Um, what have you learned about that variant and how to manage that? 
Sure. Um, so, so you're right. Um, about half of the new cases, we, we, we can't sample every case, but we do pretty robust sampling here, 10 to 20 percent of cases that we're sampling to see uh, which variants are here. Uh, and, and the latest data that we've got is about half of the, the cases that we're seeing in the state of Utah are the Delta. Delta variant, and what what we know about that Delta variant is that uh, it, it spreads more more rapidly. Um, it's it, it's more contagious, and uh, th there there's really only one answer to stopping the spread of the virus, and and that is vaccinations. Um, we we desperately need people to to get vaccinated. The good news for Utah is that we are vaccinating above the, the national average um, by age group. So uh, over the age of 65, 89% of people have, have been vaccinated, which is which is very good news. Um, the, we were pushing as the, the federal government was to get 70% of adults vaccinated, those over the age of 18 by, uh, by the 4th of July. Um, we hit that this past week uh, when we added in our, the federal partners who had done vaccinations with our our state vaccinations, we were just north of 70%. So we're really excited about that. Now, the difference in Utah versus other states, we are the youngest state in the nation. And so our overall vaccination rates are going to be lower because we have a large portion of our state that are not eligible for vaccines, those under the age of 12. And again, we have more people under the age of 12 than anywhere else. And every younger cohort um, across the nation, the vaccination rates are lower. From So from 20 to 30, you're less likely to be vaccinated from 30 to 40 versus 70 to 80. And so we have such a young population, reaching that young population and helping them uh, get vaccinated is really important. Now, we, we also know, again, that, that the virus doesn't impact younger people as significantly as it does elderly people. But to reduce the spread, we really need everyone to, uh, to get vaccinated. And so we, we're continuing to push that here in the state of Utah. So that brings me, I think, to an important point. We can't stop the spread at the moment with vaccines among younger people. And the WHO warned just today about this huge spread across 100 countries now of the Delta virus. When the virus is spreading, there are more opportunities for mutations. What other public health mitigation methods are you prepared to implement should they become necessary with the spread of this virus? Well, that, that's, that's a really loaded question uh, because if it becomes necessary and, and what that means. And, and this is one area where, where I think uh, we, we've all struggled and, and, and gotten this wrong in lots of ways. I, I've said for a long time that I wish the WHO and the CDC had behavioral scientists working side by side with their actual scientists. Um, this is uh, one of the issues we had with, uh, and in fact, I was the one on a call with President Biden that said, you know, Mr. President, um, we, we have people that are getting vaccinated. We need to start acting like it. And uh, and, and he agreed. And we, we saw a change with the CDC within the uh, within the week. The, the same types of uh, of of changes and requirements that we we made over the past year are not going to work going forward. They're, they're just not. And they don't, don't have to. That's what, what's amazing. If you look, uh, now I know the WHO, again, is taking a worldwide approach. The vaccination rates across the world are so low that those countries should be incredibly nervous about the Delta variant. Um, but when you look uh, at what's happening in Israel, for example, yes, the Delta variant is, is spreading. And we're seeing, we are seeing some breakthrough cases, but the breakthrough cases are still very limited. And most of those break, breakthrough cases are asymptomatic. Um, they, they went, I think, 10 days without having a single fatality in uh, for, for COVID just this the, the past 10 days in Israel. Um, and, and so what, what we just need to do is get more people vaccinated. So when you ask the question, you know, what, what 
But uh, what steps are we prepared to take? It's to continue to encourage vaccinations because that's how we stop the spread of this virus. And talk to me about the particular roadblocks you face in Utah. You have this young population, obviously, that's problematic. But tell me about the roadblocks you face in getting other people to receive the vaccine. Sure. So sure. We, we've known from the beginning, and, uh, and, and as a nation, we're facing this as well, that, that we have certain communities that, that are just more difficult uh, to, to get vaccinated. Some of them logistically, although that's changing now, the vaccines are available. We have, we have mobile vaccine clinics that are, that are ubiquitous throughout the state. It's never been easier uh, to, to get a vaccine. But, but certainly some of our multicultural communities, it's been difficult. We have a very large Latino population here, here in the state of Utah, approaching about 50 15% now, and their vaccination rates are, are much lower than those of the, uh, the the white majority here in the state. And so we're working uh, very closely with our multicultural communities uh, to encourage and, and inspire and, and help uh, remove those roadblocks to get them vaccinated. We also have this incredibly depressing um, thing that's happening in, in our country where, um, where everything is political. And uh, somehow uh, the vaccine, much like masks and other things, has become political. And there's, there's very robust reporting. In fact, I, th I think the Washington Post has done some polling and some writing around this, that, uh, that uh, Republicans are less likely to get vaccinated than, than Democrats and, and unaffiliated. Now, the Republicans in Utah are getting vaccinated at a higher rate than Republicans nationwide. Um, but we are a very red state, a very Republican state. And certainly in rural Utah, where I live, where I grew up and raised my family, um, those rates are lower. Um, there's less trust in, uh, in the vaccine. And so trying to overcome those barriers is, is critical. And uh, we're, we're doing everything we can to help take the politics out of, out of the, the COVID response and certainly out of vaccination. You refer to yourself as a religious man, and in many areas, um, churches have played a key role, African-American churches, in getting people vaccinated. Also, sometimes with some evangelical churches, a role in the, in the other direction of um, discouraging vaccination. Do you think, I know that Mormon church leaders, many of them have been seen getting vaccines, but they have said that it's up to the individual whether they get vaccinated. Is the church playing a strong enough role in helping you get people in Utah vaccinated? Well, we, we've been working with all of our churches here in the state of Utah, and, and I'm really pleased to report that uh, that we don't have churches here who, at least to, to my knowledge, that have been openly hostile in any way, um, encouraging people not to get vaccinated. They have all been incredibly helpful. Now, you mentioned that the um, the largest church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and, and they have been very helpful in encouraging people to get vaccinated. Um, they, they've, they've put out, again, pictures of, of the leaders of the church getting their vaccinations. Um, the, the, the prophet of the church, the president of the church, um, is a, a medical doctor. Uh, in fact, a, a world-renowned uh, physician who, who pioneered heart transplants uh, here in the United States and across the world. And, and so uh, he understands uh, explicitly the importance of this vaccine. In fact, he said that, that this is what we've been praying for, that this is the miracle that we, we needed and that we've hoped for. Um, they've been very encouraging. In fact, that, that same language where, where they do say 
say that that it is, is of course every individual's um, responsibility to make that decision. They explicitly encourage people to get vaccinated. So they, they didn't just say, you know, it's, it's up to you, whatever you want to do. They said, we think you should do this, um, but we recognize that, that you have that choice, which is the right answer. I mean, every state recognizes that people have that choice. And so we think so. We, um, they have allowed uh, vaccine clinics to happen, our mobile vaccines in parking lots of, of churches in rural Utah, which again is, is a very explicit message of their, their tacit support for, for what's happening there. And, and so we, we appreciate that. But we, and we're doing that with our, with our, our black churches. Um, we're doing that with our, our, our Latino churches as well. And, and, but, but the answer is I, I would love any, any support any religious person can give us. We'll take every ounce of it they're, they're willing to give. Governor Cox, I have a, a reader question that I'd like to ask you just briefly. It is from Bob Hartman from Utah, who says, what are you going to do to challenge Republicans in rural Utah to be vaccinated? Well, I'm, I'm going to do just that. And, and I have done that very explicitly. And that is to challenge Republicans in, in rural Utah to, to get vaccinated. And we, we know there's, there's only so much we can do, but we're going to do all of that that we can. We're, we're going to continue to encourage. I'm, we're, looking at, we're looking at incentives. Um, we've talked uh, to the, the legislature about that. That's something that would have to come through the, uh, through the, the legislature uh, to, to see how um, we're, we're looking at other states, at the success successes that they've had with some of those, working with the private sector as well uh, to see if there are some ways to incentivize people. But I've said all along, I think the best incentive is not dying. Um, I think the best incentive is not being hospitalized. It's been so sad to hear stories, people I know personally and their families, as they've talked to us about how they were wrong about choosing not to get vaccinated. Uh, they've had a loved one who has died. Uh, they've had a loved one who has been hospitalized, who is now a COVID long hauler. Um, and, and they, they, they could have gotten that shot. It was so easy and they chose not to. And now they have deep, deep regrets and wish that they had done that. And so I, I think those stories will also start to permeate and, and hopefully encourage people. I, I wish we didn't have to have those stories. Um, but, but again, anything we can do to encourage people to get vaccinated, we're, we're willing to go there. Governor Cox, you referred to the unfortunate politicization of this pandemic. And I know on Sunday on the face on face the nation, you said it had led to some bad decisions. Can you tell me now what some of those bad decisions were in the last 15 months? Well, well, sure. I, I think I, I mean, I this is not novel. I think they, these bad decisions have been well reported. I, I, I've already talked about one, and those are the decisions not to get vaccinated. I, I think those are, are very bad decisions. Um, certainly, you know, the bad decisions on the right, I think, have, have gotten a lot of attention, and, and, and rightfully so. I, I, I try to be a, a Republican who, uh, who is, who is self-aware and recognizes when, when we make mistakes and, and can do better. Um, certainly, we saw this with masks and, and the pushback. Uh, but, but I like to remind people that, um, you know, trust is so important, and and we we have lost some trust. Some of it um, unfairly, but but some of it fairly. I remember being very early on a call. We were trying to encourage people to wear masks early on, and we received enormous pushback from the medical community, um, from uh, from epidemiologists, um, from physicians, telling us that masks didn't work and that we shouldn't be encouraging people to wear masks. That it would give people a false sense of security, and uh, that it was a, a really bad idea and um, and and then uh, that all flipped as some of the data started to come back saying actually no masks are really important and they're one of the only uh, tools we have to mitigate the spread of, of the virus and we should be encouraging masks and and later that we should be mandating masks and 
remember talking to a group of physicians who were really mad at us saying, hey, why aren't you encouraging people to wear more masks? And I said, because you told us not to. And, and he said, <laughs> He said, you're absolutely right. We told you not to like two weeks ago, and now we're mad at you for not telling people to do it more. And, and so those, I, I think, are the types of decisions. And there's also this, uh, we, we've seen this a lot, this this idea that we, we, we can't trust people, and so we're not going to give them all of the story because they might make a mistake. And w unfortunately, what's happened is that's led to more distrust. When we do have good data and good science, it's been harder to convince people to follow um, that, that, that data and science. And so um, those, those are some some areas where I think we've made some mistakes. I think we made mistakes on the right coming into the pandemic. I think we've made mistakes on the left coming out of the pandemic and uh, not trusting the science about outdoors and 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 uh, and vaccinations. And and so that's it's it's just I, I think it's so foolish. I, I really just wish we could take the politics out of this. But that's where we are. Uh, politics, as I said on Face the Nation, politics has become religion. Politics has become sport. Politics has become entertainment. Um, it's become all of those things. And and. and and I think it's a mistake. You are just 45, I believe, and a young member of the Republican Party. What role do you believe former President Donald Trump has in the future of that party? Well, I'm, I'll be 46 on Sunday, so I'm, I'm getting <laughs> well, there. Well, happy birthday in advance. Lost all my hair, so um, I'm, I'm feeling much old, older. I found that these uh, these jobs uh, age a person in dog years. So uh, I think I've aged ten years at least in the past year. But we look. Um, there, I, I'm I'm a big believer in a broader tent. Um, I, I'm certainly working to help people understand that there is a place for them in the Republican Party. Uh, the, the, the party has certainly changed uh, significantly over the past four years. Um, there's there's a role for every former president in the party. Um, I hope it can be a, a collaborative role as we as we work together again to try to broaden that tent, to learn the lessons. Um, certainly, um, my approach to politics is, is a, a little different, hopefully a lot different. Um, than, than the former president, but but there's something important about what he understood and 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 the um, the, the people that that he attracted, and and again where where I grew up in in rural Utah and and places in rural America, people who have felt like they're being left behind by both parties, quite frankly, and um, and President Trump was able to to channel them and and understand their fears and their voices, um, and and I hope that we can as a party learn from that, um, channel it in, in very productive ways, in, in ways that build instead of tear down, um, but, but help to remember people who feel like the old economy is leaving them, but the new economy hasn't found them yet, and uh, that, that we, can, we can have economic and prosperity, that, that American dream for all Americans, um, for rural Americans, for, uh, for uh, Americans of color, um, for, for everyone who has felt marginalized or left behind over the past few decades. Governor Cox, this is the last question I'd like to ask about your own political future. I know you have gone from politics to farming and back again, sometimes commuting hundreds of miles a day. Uh, what is the future of Spencer Cox in the Republican Party and the broader politics of this country? Well, I'm I'm not narcissistic enough to think that that or to, to want to have a, a role beyond this incredible state in which I li live. Um, I, I know every politician says that, and that, like you're supposed to say that, and most of them don't mean it. But but let me be as clear as I and sincere as I could possibly be. Um, I love this state. 
the, the 3.3 million people who live here are, are the best people in the world. We, we lead the nation in charitable giving every year. We lead the nation in volunteerism every year. That's what makes my job great. What, what's cool about being the governor of the state of Utah is, is I don't have to solve everyone's problems. And, and government was never designed to solve everyone's problems. That's, that's a mistake that we've made. But government has to solve problems when, when we don't help solve each other's problems. It, it's a last resort. And so I, I'm lucky and fortunate to, to be able to, to be in a state with, with incredible people doing amazing things. I, I have no aspirations uh, beyond this. In fact, I have the opposite. I have aspirations to not do anything beyond this. Um, I have an incredible life outside of politics. I can't wait to get back to it. I love this job. And I've said I won't serve more than two terms. Um, I'm six months into my first term. So if I'm fortunate enough, I'll, I'll be able to uh, to serve the people of Utah for eight years. And uh, and then I get to go back to uh, to my farm and my life and, and my family and uh, live happily ever after. Well, Governor Gox, I wish you the very best with dealing with these twin crises you're facing. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Francis. Thank you also to our audience. Please join us again at 1.30 today when my colleague Michelle Norris will be back interviewing the best-selling author Clint Smith about his book about how slavery is remembered. The title is How the Word is Passed. That's 1.30 today. You can check the details on WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Francis Deed Sellers. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.